When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Hello, and welcome to Prohibited. For this episode, I'm joined by Jake Agliata, who holds a Master's of Arts in Human Rights from the University of Central Europe. He currently works as the Policy and Communications Officer for the global network, the International Network of People Who Use Drugs. During this episode, we review the international human rights regime and how that informs policing around the world, including in the United States. This is a bit of a dense interview with a lot of information, but I think you'll enjoy the academic content and approach to the episode. So without delay, let's get to the interview with Jake. Jake Agliata, before we jump into these interview questions, I gave the listeners a little bit of background about you in the introduction, but would you start us off by telling us a bit about who you are and the work that you're engaged with? Absolutely. So I work as the Policy and Communications Officer with the International Network of People Who Use Drugs, abbreviated as INPUD. We're a global peer-based organization that seeks to promote the health and defend the human rights of people who use drugs all over the world by challenging stigma, discrimination, and criminalization of drug users, and also arguing for the meaningful inclusion of people who use drugs as key voices in all levels of policymaking and decision-making. Our work can be split up into two different categories, one which I'm more involved in directly engaging in international advocacy at the United Nations, as well as other relevant global forums, including those undertaking international development work, where we work to make funding more accessible to national and regional community-led networks. We also support these national and regional networks by providing technical assistance, administrative support, and facilitating an international community where people who use drugs can discuss issues facing our communities free of judgment and censorship. There's a lot of work we are doing right now that I could talk about, and I'm sure some of it will come up during the interview. But just to give you a sense of some of the things that we are doing, right now we are obviously very concerned with how the ongoing pandemic is affecting the global drug user community. So to that end, we've initiated an international working group collecting data and stories via an online survey, the results of which we have used to generate a report on how the pandemic is affecting the health and rights of people who use drugs. We hope this report and subsequent reports can be used as national, regional, and international advocacy tools in the post-COVID world. To give you an example of what I mean by that, myself and two colleagues recently authored a commentary in the International Journal for Drug Policy where we noted some of the major findings of reports and used that to issue challenges to UN agencies, state governments, donor agencies, academics, researchers, and broader civil society to work alongside people who use drugs to ensure the injustices against our community magnified by the pandemic are addressed in a meaningful way. So Jake, as we've already alluded to, I'm happy to have you on the show. You're excited to be on the show because we first uh, met and talked about this a couple of months ago. And it sounds like we both have been thinking about 
what was going to be the content of this episode that whole time. So one of the things you shared with me in preparation for the interview was your graduate thesis. And the title of this thesis for listeners is Using Human Rights Standards to Monitor and Address Racial Discrimination in Drug Policy, excuse me, in Drug Policing. And it does sort of case studies on three different countries, the United States, United Kingdom, and Brazil. So when I sat down to write the interview, I thought that I would just skim the contents of the thesis, read a a few sections of chapters that seemed relevant to the show, that were topical for the show, and then to draw interesting pieces from that to build questions. And actually, if I remember, Jake, there were, were some specific chapters that you had referred me to in our email correspondence back and forth. But what actually happened is I opened the document and read the first sentence, and I was already mind blown. So I've been doing anti-drug war work for about 10 years, and just the first sentence of your thesis connected a lot of dots for me. So I'm going to read that sentence and then have you expand on it. It reads, Since the late 17th century, there is evidence that the criminalization of psychoactive drugs has been utilized as a tool to uphold racial hierarchy. Spanish-American colonists in South America seeking to protect their economic interests established a racial caste system among three distinct classes, European colonizers, indigenous peoples, and African slaves. I should note, technically, that's the first two sentences. But Jake, reading these sentences was a very significant piece of information for me to learn since I started doing this work, not because it's new information necessarily, right? I understand the colonial roots of racial hierarchy, certainly in the United States, I understand, you know, how that system emerged and how it contributes to mass incarceration and the drug war and just other oppressive systems today. But it changed and expanded the timeline of what I would call the beginning of the modern drug war and how that connects directly to colonialism and racial hierarchy and just so many of those other oppressive forces that I wrongly believed had much more recent roots. So I would like you to just sort of respond to that. Is that what you were trying to accomplish with the opening to the thesis? Or did I just pick up on something that is unique to me that you weren't intending? Yeah, uh, I think first and foremost, that is just about the nicest compliment I've received on this thesis. So thank you very much for just making my week with that. Um, and, and I say that not just because your words were kind, but because what you just said you, you learned from that is exactly the kind of reaction I hope to invoke by starting my thesis with this. When I sent out to write this, I knew that I wanted to write about human rights and drug policy. I was in a human rights program. I have a drug policy background. I wanted to merge those two. But I wanted to do so in a way that didn't tiptoe around the historical origins of prohibition, which I feel many academics in the human rights field often do. Um, I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, and I'm sure listeners have heard this before, but often... I note that when we're talking about the broad issue of racial discrimination in drug policy, although it's acknowledged that drug policy has implications of racial discrimination, it's usually in a framework which suggests that it's prohibition itself which leads to racial discrimination. And I feel that's incorrect. I feel that it's really the other way around. Drug prohibition is a mechanism by which state agents such as the police can legally discriminate against communities targeted by the state. And it does this by giving them resources, authority, and most importantly, protection to carry out paramilitary operations in these communities. 
So the fact that we have evidence suggesting this has been a tactic used by colonial powers for nearly 400 years, I think really underscores that the criminalization of drugs is more about creating legal justifications to target specific communities rather than addressing a public health concern. And I think that my research into the origins of these laws in particularly the United States and Brazil, but also the United Kingdom, proves that this is still a real and global issue today because we're seeing not only this continue to happen with prohibition being used to justify these horrible police actions all over the world, but we're seeing it used in other forms of prohibition when you talk about sex work or gambling or serve many other different things that you've discussed on this podcast. So, so yeah, so I think that you really hit the nail on the head with your comments about those first two sentences, because what I really hope to convey with this entire thesis is that this is not a problem of just prohibition. This is a deeper problem of how states seek to maintain a legal justification for uh, instituting racial hierarchy, racial supremacy, racial segregation, uh, whatever context that state wants to put it. Excellent. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, even just listening to your answer now, it's got me thinking a lot about some of the activism that you and I have personally been involved with the better part of the last decade. And I think if you had asked me about 10 years ago, or even five years ago, I would say that mass incarceration and over-policing and systemic racism in the criminal punishment system were all symptoms of drug prohibition. And I think that's true. But now I'm sort of, I've sort of reading your, your thesis sort of shifted that for me. And it makes me think that all those things I just named and drug prohibition are a symptom of this larger thing that you're pointing to, which is legalized oppression by state actors. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I would have thought the same thing five or six years ago as well. Um, And I think that this, doing this thesis really helped me switch that uh, belief in that regard too. And I think that the, the way to really think of it is states are always seeking reasons to exert authoritative power, or maybe a better way to word that is authoritative states will always seek to evolve the ways they consolidate power over people in their jurisdictions. As a society that generally tries to progress and move forward on human rights and civil and cultural rights, authoritative states have less and less means as time and history goes on to institute a lot of these oppressive policies. And I think things like not just drug prohibition by mention, but prohibition as a whole is one of these ways that authoritative states are able to institute authoritative actions without really declaring them as authoritative or even really seeing them as authoritative because they're done in the guise of public health, a public order, a morality, or whatever you want to put it. So, so yeah, so I think just, just like you said, I would not have believed this or, or thought about this really five or six years ago, but now it's almost like a, a light bulb has flicked on in my head that really kind of reveals what the problem is. I think before we keep going, we should take some time to unpack for listeners what the international framework is when it comes to human rights more generally, right? Because human rights is in the title of this thesis that we've already referred to. So I, I want you to define human rights for us and more broadly to define what the human rights conventions are that would inform how you know, the United States and just how the global community can go in a different direction. When I think of human rights conventions, I think of the Geneva Conventions. That's that's the one that I know of. But I 
when I thought more deeply about that, I was like, well, I don't really know too much about what's contained in those. I think I did learn at some point in school, but it just it's something that I don't remember well. What I do think I know tends to be rules about what the military can and can't do to prisoners of war and civilians during wartime. But I know that there's a lot more in that container. So what is the international human rights framework? And is it based on prohibition of certain actions and behaviors, specifically the ones that you're describing, like abusive state power and oppressive policing? Yeah. So I think defining human rights is definitely not an easy thing to do. And I I did an entire year of a human rights program, and I don't even know if I still know what human rights are. (laughs) Um, We could be here for hours just debating and discussing that. But in the context of international law, human rights are essentially the fundamental norms and moral principles that we seek to protect as universal and inherent rights belong to all human beings, and this is the key part, without discrimination. So essentially it's saying that these are the fundamental rights that everyone has by virtue of being human, and people should not be restricted for enjoying these rights uh, for any reason which discriminates based on race, uh, sex, gender, um, nationality, whatever you want to say. Um, so anti-discrimination or really non-discrimination makes up the very fundamental bedrock of the international human rights regime. You can break human rights into two broader categories, civil and political rights, which include things like the rights of political participation, due process, the right to free speech. Most of what you see in the U.S. Bill of Rights are civil and political rights. And then there's economic, social, and cultural rights, which are things such as the right to health, the right to life, the rights to education or housing, and even the right to culture. Um, There are some rights, such as the right to self-autonomy, which could fall into either category depending on the context. But in general, this is how we break up human rights. So in terms of how the international human rights system functions, These rights are enshrined into international law through dozens, if not hundreds, of conventions and treaties, which each individual state must agree to and sign to ratify. And the Geneva Conventions are a great example of that. These are conventions which place rules and regulations on the use of military force on both combatants and non-combatants by setting up certain human rights standards that the military has to abide by. So, for instance, in respect of the right to life, extrajudicial killings under Geneva Convention are prohibited because that is not in line with jurisprudence under the right to life. So these obligations generally can be defined as either negative or positive, which is an important distinction to make as we kind of go through the rest of this. Negative obligations stemming from human rights conventions are those in which states have to refrain from doing something. So, for instance, in the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhumane, or Degrading Treatment, which we call the CAT, Uh, would be for states to refrain from using torture, simply as that, both within their jurisdiction and among state agents operating on foreign territory. So in this instance, the U.S. is both prohibited from using torture within the U.S. territory jurisdiction, but also in Iraq or Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay, the convention should be prohibiting us from doing those things. Obviously, it's not, and I think we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, So... States are also prohibited under this convention, for instance, from extraditing individuals to other states where there is reasonable grounds to suspect where they would be subject to torture. The uh, European Court of Supreme 
a, a European Court of Human Rights case A versus others in the UK is a great example of this. The UK was blocked by the court from extraditing an individual to Jordan because there was reasonable suspicion that he would have faced torture when he arrived in Jordan. So under this convention, under the negative obligations established in the convention, the UK is, has to refrain from extraditing this individual. So those are negative obligations. Pretty much simply stated, the state has to refrain from doing something. And I think it's actually useful to think of it as the state is placing a prohibition on itself by signing onto the convention or agreeing to prohibit itself from conducting certain actions. So that's negative obligations. But where I think we see prohibition most come up in human rights law is in positive obligations which are obligations where states have to take some kind of action to protect the rights stated in the convention. So sticking with the CAT example, states are obligated to ensure acts of torture and offenses are, uh, or, or acts of torture are offenses under criminal law, so that when state agents or private citizens conduct an act of torture, there is a legal mechanism for addressing the offense and implementing the appropriate penalties. So positive obligations are often where we most see prohibition implemented in a human rights context, as they often require uh, some form of legislation or even constitutional change to implement these obligations. A great example was when the United States signed the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. Nine years later, we passed the Controlled Substances Act, which established a drug scheduling system as stipulated in that convention. So that's an example of the U.S. fulfilling its positive obligation under the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs by then passing the Controlled Substances Act. Another example would be countries that prohibit sex work based on anti-trafficking obligations under the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So most human rights conventions contain both positive and negative obligations, but uh, most of the instances where prohibition is involved occur in positive obligations. Thanks for breaking that down for us. I know there's a lot to unpack there, but one piece that I really want to focus on is how effective this framework is, because it sounds it sounds voluntary, right? So whether we're referring to those positive or negative actions that a state would need to take that you that you broke down for us. It seems to me, whether we're talking about Saudi Arabia, or Myanmar, or frankly, the United States, it seems like all of those countries are engaged in human rights violations, right? And maybe every country in between on whatever spectrum you, you want to break nations down by. So how effective is this framework? Because it seems like the power still lies with the individual states rather than with some kind of central authority. The, the, the conventions are voluntary, right? Once you've signed on to them? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I think a very important thing to understand about international law as a whole is that state sovereignty is recognized as the highest level of authority. So bodies like the United Nations don't actually hold legal jurisdiction or power over individual states. Like you're saying, each state is responsible for implementing the obligations and conventions that they sign in a manner which best fits their own legal system. Now, this obviously has positives and, benefit, positives and negatives. And one on the positive aspect, it respects the fact that different countries, different regions of the world will have cultural differences or disagreements over the implementation of certain rights and laws. Uh, torture and imprisonment are a big debate in this regard, too, especially when discussing the 
uh, self-autonomy of indigenous communities who consider prison a very extreme form of torture, but actions which we would consider to be torture, degrading punishments, just a regular part of restorative justice. These are the kind of uh, conflicts which are very difficult to address in a in a universal attempt to develop fundamental rights, which is what international human rights law is attempting to do. So it also means that states can kind of decide what is enough when implementing the obligations of a convention. So like I said, some states may consider just passing a law enough to fulfill the obligations of the conventions. Other states may go as far as amending their entire constitution to fulfill positive obligations. So it really does depend on how seriously the state takes it. But it also depends on the interpretation that the state has towards the convention, which is a very, very important thing to discuss. So in regards to the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which is the convention which makes up the legal basis of my thesis, is how Russia implemented Article 4 of that convention. Article 4 places an obligation on states to criminalize hate speech or other forms of propaganda based on ideas of racial superiority. But who gets to define what is hate speech and what is propaganda based on ideas of racial superiority is ultimately the Kremlin, not the UN. So Russia basically took this obligation and legislated laws which categorize many forms of basic political dissent as hate speech, using their interpretation of the convention to justify criminalization of groups which the government deemed a threat. If you recall the ban Pussy Riot, um, I should note that I don't know if this is 100% true, but I'm 90% sure it is. The laws they were arrested under fall into the category of Russian hate speech, hate speech laws, which were implemented from that convention. So in this case, although Russia has adopted the convention and passed laws fulfilling their obligations under the convention, their interpretation of it clearly diverges from the intent. And because the UN has no legal authority to tell Russia their interpretation is wrong, and because restitution is impossible without the involvement of Russia, there's really nothing that can be done by the UN to address this outside of writing letters of condemnation and submitting negative reports. So compare this to the United States, who, by contrast to Russia, took about 30 years to ratify the same convention, partially because our disagreement that that article criminalizing hate speech is not constitutional based on our own Supreme Court's jurisprudence around freedom of speech. Even when we did finally ratify the convention during the Clinton administration, we submitted a reservation saying that we did not interpret Article 4 as placing an obligation to criminalize hate speech in our legal code. So essentially, we said that we're going to sign this convention, we're going to ratify it, but we're not going to pass laws criminalizing hate speech because we don't interpret this convention as giving us that obligation. And the U.S. did this with a bunch of different articles in this convention and typically does it with a lot of human rights conventions as a whole. And it kind of makes it, in the U.S. context, signing on these conventions more virtue signaling than anything else because we're saying that we condemn racial discrimination, but we're not doing anything to actually address it that the convention says we should be doing. And just like Russia, there's really nothing the U.N. as a body can do other than condemn it. And especially with a country like the United States, other countries and certain bodies are going to be very hesitant to issue condemnations of the U.S. because of political reasons. So you have two very different examples of how a well-intentioned human rights treaty can be reinterpreted 
by two powerful, I would say authoritative states in a way which doesn't actually address the human rights issues. I should say that in the context of these two countries specifically, Russia and the US are definitely outliers in the international human rights regime. They kind of do their own things and there's a lot of reasons for that. But in general, the big hegemonic powers in our world are going to be less beholden to international human rights laws because there's no consequences for them if they don't abide by the treaties. There may be other states which in attempts to curry favor with countries like the US or Brazil or France or Germany may implement human rights treaties for political gain, but there's really that's not really an incentive for the US or Russia or Brazil or countries like that to do that. So while countries like Germany certainly have taken ICERT in good faith, it's really hard to say as a whole that in this instance, and really the international human rights framework as a whole, it's been effective at protecting rights because the results have just been so inconsistent across the board. I think this is a good point in the interview to delve a bit deeper into what the human rights standards are for racial discrimination in policing. Obviously, this is a timely topic here in the United States as thousands of U.S. residents are killed by law enforcement personnel every year. And of course, this has led to civil unrest and demonstrations across the U.S. and the world, particularly because of the huge racial disparities in these deaths, which has led uh, in turn to the use of brute force and chemical weapons such as tear gas by law enforcement personnel on peaceful U.S. citizens across the country. And recently, the Trump administration has deployed and threatened to continue deploying unidentified federal personnel who've been abducting demonstrations abducting demonstrators who are protesting racism and police violence. I could keep going with more and more examples, sadly. And of course, it's also a problem outside of the US. We've seen, for example, similar law enforcement behavior like the use of tear gas and use of police violence against demonstrators in Hong Kong in recent months and years, for example. So Jake, what are the bases for the global human rights standards in law enforcement, including racial discrimination? And how much in violation are U.S.-based law enforcement agencies with those standards? Very much in violation of those standards. Um, but obviously, to go into more detail about that. So because anti-discrimination, or sorry, I should say non-discrimination, makes up the bedrock principle of the entire human rights system, there have been a lot of different agencies which have produced documents or guidelines around racial discrimination law enforcement, although a lot of them kind of tend to say the same thing. I will say, though, that there has been a lot of great observations globally about the prevalence of systemic discrimination among law enforcement and in criminal justice systems in general in countries which specifically have a history of slavery, apartheid, or segregation. Obviously, the U.S. falls under that category. So... To expand that out more, so General Comment 31 of uh, the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination states pretty clearly that no country is free from racial, racial discrimination in the functioning of the criminal justice system. And although it doesn't single out law enforcement specifically, it does suggest that in states, law enforcement should be undertaking regular reviews to identify and address racial discrimination among the police. This means not only reviewing police conduct, but laws that police are upholding. So as a whole, the most basic obligation placed by ICERD in relation to policing is this basic obligation to regularly conduct these reviews of law enforcement and to take appropriate action when abuses are uncovered. I think this is really important because 
To me, I think the lengths to which a state will go to hold their own law enforcement agents accountable for racial discrimination says a lot about how they how, about how seriously they take not only the convention, but the broader principles of non-discrimination, which makes up the basic framework of all human rights law. If a state isn't willing to hold their own police or other state agents accountable for acts of targeted violence and operate within a culture which places law enforcement agents into a privileged class with special protections, I don't think that any state could be considered to be in line with international human rights obligations regarding racial discrimination or really many other rights as well. I mean, how can you say a country is following the right to life when they are allowing, like you just mentioned, the unchecked and unresponded to murders of many people throughout the country and specifically black people by police? I don't think that you can really say a state is a human rights friendly regime or following their human rights obligations if that is occurring and if it's going unaddressed. So ultimately, we have to remember the success of human rights law is based on what a state will do to hold itself accountable and address violations of rights, since as we just discussed, a lot of this is voluntary. So in this regard, I don't think anyone would disagree that the United States has utterly, utterly failed and has been failing for a very, very long time. And I actually think this makes a great argument for the abolishment of police under international human rights law. Because when we look at the history of policing in the United States, it's always been very linked to the maintenance of white supremacy, dating back to the origins of state police as slave catchers. So reforming the police, therefore, isn't enough to bring the U.S. in line with human rights obligations, because as an inherently racist institution, there can never be justice or restitution for victims of racialized police violence so long as that institution continues to function. So a true review of U.S. conduct under ICERD would acknowledge this and recommend the U.S. move towards models of community-based conflict resolution, which make the police become obsolete. And the last thing I'll just say about that is I, I think that actually, you know what? That's it. <laughs> You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue, I'd like to tell you about one of Prohibited's season two nonprofit advocacy sponsors. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by CCA, the Cannabis Cultural Association. CCA is a nonprofit organization that helps marginalized and underrepresented communities engage in the legal cannabis industry. CCA's growing network of activists and advocates seek to repair the harms of the war on drugs, which have disproportionately fallen onto communities of color and other marginalized communities. CCA places an emphasis on the pursuit of cannabis equity, from criminal justice reform to patient access to medical cannabis to adult use cannabis legalization. CCA is a national leader in the pursuit of a more equitable cannabis industry. You can support their work directly and play your part in the establishment of cannabis equity by becoming a donor today. As a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your gifts to CCA are tax deductible. To find out more, visit their website at canacultural.org or contact them directly via email at contact at canacultural.org. Support the Cannabis Cultural Association today. Welcome back to Prohibited. Jake, let's talk about law enforcement agencies here in the U.S. a little bit more. One of the things that I've been noticing is that there's this interesting dynamic happening where I think 
I'm hearing from the activist community what we used to hear from law enforcement agencies themselves a number of years ago. And a lot of time when it comes to activism, there's sort of a reverse process where the rhetoric coming from activists over a number of years becomes the rhetoric in the communication from policymakers. So it's this on this one specific thing. If you listen to law enforcement agencies, in particular law enforcement unions, over the course of the last decade, let's say, one of the, the things you would hear very frequently is that law enforcement personnel are being treated unfairly because we ask our police to do too much. We ask them to be social workers. We ask them to be substance use counselors. We ask them to intervene in all types of crimes and situations and social problems that don't really have much, if anything at all, to do with law enforcement. Interestingly enough, I think they're right about that. And we're as we're hearing from a lot of activists and even now from specific municipalities across the state, like we covered in the last episode for listeners, is that we shouldn't ask law enforcement to respond to things that are not actual emergencies in which someone is in danger. So with that in mind, Jake, how did law enforcement agencies and law enforcement personnel in the U.S., how did we get to a point where they have what amounts to unprecedented and often unchecked power? So obviously the war on drugs has played a huge role in this, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that history, so I'm not going to spend too much time going through that. On a broader scale, though, I think the erosion of the distinction between domestic law enforcement and the military has been one of the things that's granted police this immense power and privilege. So just a little history. During the Reconstruction era, laws were passed in order to curtail the power of law enforcement over civilians by restricting access to military equipment, resources, and training. And this was redone in response to the ongoing occupation of federal troops in the South, as well as police units who were coordinating with the military. So at this point in U.S. history, there was a clear line between the military, who were charged with defending the country from foreign threats with whatever means necessary, and law enforcement, who were charged with keeping the peace using as little force as possible. That line is obviously very, very blurred today. And it's difficult to point to one exact moment when it really shifted over because it really was a gradual shift. But I think the 1981 Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act is one of the biggest legal shifts that happened because it authorized the military to transfer equipment to local and state police agencies and authorized military personnel to train these officers. So I think what that does is I said before that the military is charged with defending from foreign threats with whatever means necessary and law enforcement has to use as little force as possible. Well, now law enforcement is being charged with keeping the peace using whatever means necessary, the same as the military. Furthermore, there are Supreme Court cases such as Terry v. Ohio, which have given legal justification for actions such as stop and frisk and warrantless seizures and flagrant violation of the Fourth Amendment. I think one thing that was interesting when I researched this was Thurgood Marshall once referred to this specific contention as the drug exception to the Constitution. I think this really underscores just how much power the police have been given, much, sorry, just how much militarized power the police have been given, because the, the U.S. is essentially creating legal exemptions from core constitutional obligations in the name of pursuing policies such as drug prohibition, or you could even say the war on terror. So I think overall, it's this blurring of the line between the role of the military and the role of law enforcement, which has really given this immense power to the police 
And I think that obviously defunding the police is one of the most basic things that we need to do in order to start to address this problem. But I think that it even brings up the question of curtailing the power of the military as a whole, because certainly if military have been encouraged via laws and via different policies to be transferring military grade equipment over to domestic um, forces for the purpose of peacekeeping, that may still happen with or without police. So I think this is a really key thing to be wary of, and it involves not only defunding the police, but it possibly also involves reforms to the way we view and manage our military as well. Before we continue, I wanted to give listeners a specific example that I think is really very relevant. For folks who listened to the episode last week where I interviewed Bria Johnson from the Black Youth Project 100, I talked about the reluctance that that I as a policymaker and that some residents of our city feel when it, when we have conversations around defunding our municipal police department because we have a county law enforcement agency that's just massive. Um, our police department, by contrast, has about 20 people in it. A specific example of it going beyond what we're asking law enforcement personnel to respond to, it's how they respond to that call for service. And just after I recorded that last episode, we had an incident here in the city where uh, a suspect um, confronted some construction workers with a baseball bat and a knife because they were upset about the noise the construction workers were making. I think they were changing municipal water pipes or something to that effect. And so, you know, of course, the police were called. These these workers felt threatened by this person that was carrying, you know, wielding a knife and carrying a baseball bat. The suspect went back into their residence um, before police, you know, when after police responded and to the the point of needing, as, as folks often describe, in this instance, maybe a social worker should have been called. So fortunately, that's what happened. Our police department, who only has one part-time social services coordinator and no social social workers, contacted the county law enforcement agency and asked for a social worker slash mediator to be sent, which I think is a good thing, right? That's obviously a much better way to try to confront and deal with whatever obvious mental breakdown this person um, who's known to have mental illnesses, by the way, was experiencing. So the good news is that social worker was called. The bad news is when the county responds with that specific personnel, they also sent two armored vehicles and a SWAT team, right? So I can't tell you how many residents contacted, you know, me as a council member to say, hey, this seems like overkill. Like the notice the police station put out is that there's a standoff because someone was was wielding a knife. Why are there two armored vehicles and a SWAT team like outside my house right now? So j- just an example for listeners, a very specific example of not having the right person respond to a specific event has consequences, but then also the type of response if you get it right, you can also still get it disastrously wrong. So, Jake, let's talk about another specific way that the this uh, huge, immense amount of power that law enforcement agencies have leads to very terrible abuses and overreaches. You wrote about the stop and search policy in the UK, and I'm just curious to know, is that similar to the stop and frisk policy that was active in New York, for example, where hundreds of thousands of mostly young, mostly black and brown men were routinely stopped and illegally searched. What are the similarities between UK's stop and search and the US's stop and frisk policies? And also, in the US, the stop and frisk policy in New York City 
was ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge. What's the status of stop and search in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So stop and search is essentially the same as stop and frisk in the US. It gives police the authority under certain conditions to stop someone and conduct a search of them or their vehicle if they want to as well. And yeah, just like in the United States, black and Asian people in particular are eight times more likely in the UK to experience a stop and search than a white person, even though crime rates are actually higher among white people in the UK, especially among the crimes where people are often stopped and searched for, such as drugs or weapons. So it's pretty similar in that regard. I think the one of the key differences in the UK law is that in the US, police could do stop and frisk for a long time, even if they were not in uniform. In the UK, they always had to be in uniform in order to conduct a stop and search. But that's aside from that, that's really kind of the same policy. So in terms of the current status, after some awareness by advocates was brought up about the racial disparities in the early to late 2000s, it actually has decreased significantly or really somewhat significantly across all racial groups since 2011. But that decrease has happened much, much more sharply among white people, indicating a concentration of the tactic is still being put on black and other minority ethnicities. So overall, black people were still stopped and searched more than eight times more than white people in 2017, which is the same amount that they were being searched even before 2011 when stop and search was on an all-time high. And Asian people and those of missing ethnicity are also still twice as likely to be searched as well. So just like the U.S., policing of drugs is certainly driving this disparity because almost two-thirds of all stop and searches are targeted at drugs. But one key difference in the UK as well is that stop and search is used very often to look for weapons. And this regard, racial discrimination and racial profiling play a huge role because there's obviously a racial bias that many officers have on what kind of person might be carrying a weapon and my kind of person might not be carrying a weapon. So in that regard, there is a couple of different differences in the way that someone, that a police officer will identify someone to stop and search, but it is essentially the same thing. Um, so unlike the United States, there has not been a constitutional court decision on stop and search in the, in the UK as of yet. But there was a very influential report in 2016 called the Lammy Review, which did an entire review of the stop and search policy, among other instances of police conduct, which really highlighted the disparities which uh, we've just been talking about. So the Lambert Review has not quite had the same impact as, say, a constitutional court decision, but it has led to more awareness in the political realm of the UK about stop and search policies and certainly has been given more tools to advocates to argue against this practice in general. I think we have to take some time to talk about the role that segregation plays in carrying out police violence. Many communities in the United States are heavily segregated, whether that's because races are segregated within a community, which is almost almost always the case in large American cities, or communities are often segregated because they're hegemonic by race or largely hegemonic by race. So obviously, Jake, segregation is a function of police violence in the U.S., and it sounds like really around the globe, as you point out in your thesis in the U.K. and Brazil, that's certainly the case. So is it correct that segregation seems to be a key component of police violence around the globe? And if so, 
is the answer or is one of the primary responses then to trying to dismantle violent policing is desegregation that key component for dismantling it as well? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And I think especially when we look at a country like Brazil, it's very, very apparent. Brazil is very, very highly segregated, especially in urban areas. But what's interesting about Brazil is that when you talk about police violence conducted against Afro-Brazilians, for example, well, most police in Brazil's police forces tend to be Afro-Brazilians. And the reason why I think this is relevant when bringing up segregation is because you talk about police needing to reflect the community. Well, the police in Brazil and many parts of Brazil is reflecting the community, and yet racialized police violence is still happening. And I think that's important to note because essentially what it's telling us is that there are socioeconomic benefits for Black Brazilians to join the police so they don't experience racialized police violence in their own community. The trade-off from that obviously be, being that they are conducting that violence instead. And, you know, I struggle with, with even calling it racialized police violence because of the implication of um, an Afro-Brazilian conducting racialized police violence against another Afro-Brazilian. But I think when you talk about the broader system of segregation and racial hierarchy that has existed in Brazil for a long time, it it is still categorized as racialized police violence. So yeah, segregation plays a huge role in this because ultimately the reason why states are conducting these policies and implementing this in place is to control the communities of people who they deem threats or people that they want to otherwise subjugate. So in the case of Brazil, Afro-Brazilians have been the subject of discrimination for a long, long time. And by segregating them into these urban communities and by enforcing that segregation through policing of drug policies, of drug trafficking, of other forms of prohibition, they're able to not only create a community which is heavily policed and suffers violence at the hands of the police. But if people want to escape that violence, what they can do is join the police and contribute to it as well. So the state has kind of an ultimate control over the community in this regard. And I think that it is, it's very imperative to talk about this notion of desegregation if we're going to talk about addressing the racialized problems with police violence. And thanks for circling us back to drug policy and drug prohibition and the role that that plays in everything that we've discussed today. You know, in your thesis, you say at one point in the conclusion that it's imperative that states are, quote, actively measuring how drug control policies are being enforced by police in order to ensure that there is no racial bias. How do they do that? What is the description for what a different path forward looks like? Is it simply abolishment of police forces? Is it a reimagining of them? And if you don't, even if you don't know the answer to that question, or you think it's more nuanced than the way I'm asking it, what are the measurements that you're talking about that states should be engaged in to make sure there is no racial bias present in their criminal punishment system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it comes back to something that we talked about earlier in terms of one of the biggest obligations that states have from any human rights convention are regular reviews of their state agents and their policies to ensure that obligation or that violations of human rights are not occurring. So in the context of police, one of the most basic things that states need to be doing in terms of a tool to address discrimination 
is conducting these regular reviews and acting on them as well. So I mentioned the Lamy review earlier in the UK, and I think this is a good example of this because this was an instance of the UK as a government, not the UK police or any kind of policing agency, conducting their own review of their own policies, policing, and practices to determine if they can detect patterns of racial discrimination and also provide recommendations for how to uh, get around or, or address these violations as well. So how effective this is comes down to whether or not, I guess comes down to whether or not you consider defunding the police to be a police abolitionist movement or simply removing a lot of power away from the police. I tend to fall on the side of, I don't think that there can be true restitution for the problem of racialized police violence until the police are rendered obsolete. Because as we have talked about, policing has always been very tied with this maintenance of racial hierarchy. And I just don't see a means by which police can still be, can still have a role in society in the way that they are organized right now and not conduct racial discrimination. As the multiple UN agencies have said, like I mentioned before, criminal justice is inherently going to touch upon racial discrimination in every country around the world. So I think in terms of the tools by which we need to carry out to address racial discrimination, it's these regular reviews of not only the policing, but the policies that police are carrying, addressing that through policy change and providing recommendations. And yes, also working towards making sure that we move towards a community and society where the role of police is now obsolete and all these different things that police are doing right now can be better resolved through community um, self-autonomy. Jake, I always close interviews by asking our guests the following question. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about today? I think we talked about a lot of my favorite things, so I, I appreciate the platform to do so. Um, I have two quick things I want to say, just one a quick plug and then just a final closing thought. Uh, I mentioned before that we're doing a survey um, via my organization, Input. I just want to encourage people again to go and fill that survey out. It's very important from a human rights context that we understand how this current pandemic and also broader issues as well, such as the, the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement, racialized police violence. Tell us how these issues affect you as a person who uses drugs, if you identify as that, because that really does help us in our international, regional, and national advocacy to be able to link these connections between human rights violations and the enforcement of drug prohibition. So I want to just say again, please go and fill out that survey. It helps us immensely to compile this data. And then just a final closing thought, um, just to end on kind of an optimistic note, because I think we've talked a lot about how human rights law has really failed to address this core issue. And I think it's very easy to come away from this conversation and this topic with feeling very defeated about human rights as a concept. Well, I want people to consider that human rights is an always evolving field of study. It's an always evolving principle that we're trying to still continuously understand. And I think that we are entering into an age in which there is more global cooperation, not only on a state level, but just on a community level than ever before, where community-based advocates have now the power and the knowledge to advocate for human rights on their own terms outside of this very legal, very technical, very sometimes impossible to understand international framework. So what I guess I'm trying to say here is I don't want people to lose faith that human rights are a, 
obsolete or oppressive concept or anything. I instead want to encourage people to reclaim the concept of human rights as a community-driven idea and one which we as people can practice among our own communities, among ourselves, and not just have to rely on the state to protect these rights for us. So that's what I like to end on. I obviously I was a human rights major, so I had to say something positive about human rights as an institution. But um, other than that, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And I hope that if people have questions, they will reach out to me for further comment. Jake Agliata is the Policy and Communications Officer with the International Network of People Who Use Drugs. Jake, thanks for joining me on Prohibited. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Our editor is Chris Harris. Our music is by KCAP. Our webmaster is Ricardo Amaya, and I'm your host, Scott Cecil. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com prohibited and share it with your friends and family. This podcast is a production of Prohibited Media. You can find a full archive of our episodes at our website at prohibitedpodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you have ideas or feedback for the show, feel free to send us an email at prohibitedpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, no matter how prohibition impacts your life and the lives of those around you, you're still free to think for yourself. And we hope we've given you something to think about today. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you next time.